Today's reading is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will, be, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let, go, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word for today. Please be seated. So this morning we're continuing our series in First Peter. The title of the series is, Where is your hope. The theme this morning is a continuation and application of that. Where is your hope when you suffer? Not, not if you suffer, but when suffering enters your world. And sometimes that suffering is very intense. Sometimes that suffering is due to a physical malady. Sometimes that suffering is due to relational discord. Uh, but we live, as you, as you watched, as Hannah talked about her and her relationship with her husband, Justin, we live in a broken world and, and God deconstructs us so he can reconstruct us in the image of his son. And he uses suffering as a process. But it's important, it's important to get a grasp, a scriptural grasp on uh, how we think about suffering because how we think about our suffering will determine whether that suffering becomes for us a tool, a tool in our ongoing sanctification and our future glorification or suffering can be used as a tool that unravels our faith. That all depends on how we approach it and how we think about it. Oftentimes, the way we think about suffering is worse than the suffering itself. So we're going to take a look at three things this morning. The title of the message is How to Suffer Well. How to Suffer Well. We're going to take a look at why we need a right view of suffering. This is crucial. Second thing we're going to look at from the scripture this morning, which Mitzi read, is what we need to understand, what we need to understand about that suffering. And then third, as way of application, uh, how we need to then respond in faith to that suffering. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to be starting in verse 12. Let's go to the Lord and let's ask him to work in our hearts this morning. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us to yourself. We thank you that it is by grace, through faith, and not by work, so that no one can boast. And we thank you, Lord, that you promise to use um, even our, our, our deepest pains as a means by which you draw us closer to yourself. But Lord, we know that intellectually, would you help us to live that out by faith? Would you show us through your gospel, through your word, Lord, how Jesus suffered so that we might suffer well 
and so that that suffering would lead to our sanctification and your glorification, Lord. We just pray that you use the preaching of the word this morning. May I decrease so that Christ may increase. And Father, we just ask this in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, here we go. First of all, why we need a right view. We're going to take a look at the why. Why do we need to understand this? Why? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, let's take a look. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, take a look at the text. Let me ask you a question. Why do you suppose Peter would write that? Because people were surprised and thought it strange that whatever they were going through was happening to them. How many of you have been in a place in your life, and it could be recently, where suffering came upon you like a sucker punch and you were overwhelmed with it and you did not know how to handle it. Anyone? Okay, that's all of you. And those of you who didn't raise your hand, wait a week. <laughs> Just wait. It'll happen. It'll happen. I became a Christian in 1988 as a college student. I entered ministry uh, in 1997. That first year of ministry... That first year of ministry, and, and most of you that have been coming to Grace, you've heard this story repeatedly. It's kind of like, you know, Grandpa Thanksgiving. He tells the same stories over and over. But uh, I, I had not been serving as the college pastor here for longer than three months before my son Ryan, his kidneys began to shut down. And we took him to the hospital, Mercy Hospital, and they did a bunch of tests. They figured maybe he had strep infection that had settled into his kidneys. And they couldn't find any bugs. They couldn't find any, uh, yeah, any bacteria. And they, there was just a mystery. So they transferred Ryan to the University of Iowa hospitals. Uh, um, the, uh, uh, and, he, and he saw a, a pediatric kidney specialist. And, and they, they tested him for days and days. And they were having trouble finding what it was wrong. And finally, finally they, they found what was wrong. And they sat us down. And, and the doctor said, he has Wagner's disease. Says, well, What's Wagner's disease? It's an autoimmune disease that attacks the, the kidneys and the lungs. I'm like, okay, what's the, what's the prognosis? Well, there is no cure, and so we'll treat him with massive doses of steroids, and eventually his kidneys will stop working, and he'll have to be put on a donor list. And it could be fatal. My son's five, and I held it together just long enough for the doctor to leave the off, leave the room. And then par for the course, I completely lost it. Completely lost it. And I didn't want my son to see me that way because it would probably scare him. And so I got up, and I walked out of the room, and I wandered wandered the halls of the University of Iowa Hospital, and I asked God why. And I remember, I, remember, I remember saying at one point something to the effect of, God, I've given you my life. And do you, I, want you to, I want you to think about that statement. What, what am I implying there? I'm implying that since I've given you my life, I ought not to be waylaid by suffering the way that I am. 
I should be exempt because I've given you everything to preach the gospel. The least you could do is not strike my son with, with an illness that could take his life. Do you, do you see that? I don't believe in karma, but obviously I did. I was, I was surprised. I was shocked. This shouldn't happen to me. And I, I guarantee you that every single one of you has a story that's similar to that. And Peter knows it. He knows that as followers of Christ, you and I, we are going to be waylaid with pain. You are going to get ill. You are going to attend a funeral of someone that you love deeply that might be younger than you or might be older than you, might be a spouse, might be a child, might be a grandparent, doesn't matter. Or, 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 or you're going to get that diagnosis, that malignant diagnosis that no one gets, wants to hear, the C word, cancer. Or you'll lose your job or your spouse will cheat on you and leave you, leaving you decimated and you won't see it coming. And you will ask, God, why? And you'll be surprised. Here's the deal. Peter's saying, don't be. Now, not being surprised is not the same thing as, Peter's not saying, therefore, don't be in pain. He's not saying don't be in pain. The pain is pain. You can't avoid the pain. But you can't avoid being surprised about the pain. Because it's not strange. As you saw in the testimony, we live in a broken and a fallen world. And it impacts that that brokenness and that fallenness. It creeps into every facet of, of the universe, of our lives. So don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial. A couple, a couple of scriptures. I want you to, to note this in your notes. You, you don't have to turn here, but I'm referencing Psalm chapter 73. Psalm chapter 73. This is a, a Psalm of Asaph. Psalm of Asaph. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, but as for me, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envy of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And what he goes on to explain here is that while he suffers and while the righteous are afflicted, he notices a pattern. He cannot help but see that the unrighteous, those who don't profess to know God, who avoid God, they seem to be fat and sleek and they don't suffer. And, and this shocked him and this surprised him. And he says, my feet almost stumbled. Later on in Psalm chapter 73, he says, my soul was embittered because of it. That's what happens when we're surprised, when we're shocked, when we think it shouldn't be us, it should be those who are not following God. And then suffering happens to us or those we love. We're shocked and we're surprised and our souls become embittered. Our souls become embittered. Self-pity is the child of surprise. Have you ever experienced self-pity? That's a rhetorical question. But what does it look like? What does self-pity look like? Self-pity is the, this ought not to be me. I don't deserve this. 
I should be receiving something else. And that self-pity leads to bitterness. It morphs. It becomes bitterness of the soul. And here's what happens. When we become bitter, when Asaph is becoming, his soul is becoming embittered, what happens here is, is that we begin to think that God can no longer be trusted. We, we, our Sunday school answer is that we know that God is good and God is good all the time, right? Or is he? Because when we are going through self-pity and we become embittered in soul, when we're shocked and surprised by the suffering we go through, we begin to question God's integrity. That's what I was doing as I was wandering the halls of the hospital. I've given you everything. What does that mean? It's implying that therefore you owe me a life free of intense suffering. And because there's intense suffering going on, by implications, I am charging God with wrongdoing which means that I'm not sure that I can trust him anymore. All of you are suffering to some degree. Some of you intensely right now. Some of you have come out of a season of suffering and some of you will go into it. And every one of you will be faced with a question of whether or not can God really be trusted with this? Asaph said, my feet almost stumbled. Almost. But he turned the corner. Psalm 73, verse 16, through verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. You see, we need to understand this. This is what Peter's saying. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something were strange. But enter into the presence of God, and let's consider this. Consider what Peter's saying. Consider what what the scriptures say so that we might understand this. So let's take a look. Let's transition. Understand, beloved, do not be surprised. Two things here. At the fiery trial, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, The what? The fiery trial. This is literally, the Greek word for fiery trial literally means the process of burning. The process of burning. That's an interesting way to to put it when he's talking about human suffering. Don't be surprised at the process of burning that you're going through. Suffering hurts. When you put your hands in a flame or you touch something hot, it hurts. And then often afterwards, if you've been burned, it hurts for quite a while afterwards. That's what fire does. Fire burns. Fire hurts. Peter's saying, do not be surprised. At what? At the fiery trial you're going through. Now, if you remember back from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he calls them various trials. James says the same thing in chapter, chapter 1 of James. He says um, that we ought to rejoice through the various trials. What are various? All kinds of trials. It could be a physical illness. It could be anything, anything and everything that causes pain. And he refers to them as a fiery trial. So that's the what. Let's take a look at the why. The, to test you. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal, the, the process of burning when it comes, not if it comes, when it comes, upon you to, to test you. Now, this word test this word test, it means to prove or examine. 
to prove or examine. It's not a true-false question. It's not a, it's not a multiple choice. It's a proving. You've, you've, heard of the, you've heard of the phrase, boy, that really tests a person's mettle. To, to demonstrate whether or not it's going to hold up. To demonstrate whether or not it's going to, to hold up. This is, this is what suffering does. Can we opt out of it? What do you think? Not a chance. You don't get to opt out of the fiery ordeals. You don't get to opt out of the tests. We don't. I remember I had a conversation uh, just over a year ago prior to my surgery. Someone who, who cared about me and they, and they, they, saw, they wanted my welfare and they, they wanted to pray uh, before I went into surgery, and I was grateful for that. And, and I, I just made a passing comment before I went into surgery. I said, you know, God has really used this trial, used this trial to teach me some things that I needed to understand. And I quoted, I quoted Romans chapter 5. Let me read you the verse that I quoted. Not only this, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so I was telling this person, this is what God has done through this suffering, and, and, and this person said, you know, I never liked that verse. <laughs> and and, they, and here's what they said. I, I never liked that verse because... Because I've been given the Holy Spirit, I've been given the Word of God, and I've been taught and shown what godly character looks like, I ought to be able to become godly simply by applying the Word of God and obeying it. To which I said, that's not the way it works. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5 Chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. I'd like you to turn there if you have your Bibles. Verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Here's the hard, cold gospel truth. Jesus was made perfect through suffering and he learned obedience. There's no way that I can be sanctified and made perfect apart from suffering if Jesus had to suffer. It's not enough to have a Bible and the Holy Spirit. Suffering is the means by which God sanctifies his servants. That's how it works. Jesus understands, he empathizes, he sympathizes, he has suffered as we have suffered, only far greater. He understands. How does this work? 
How does this work? I want you to jump back a few chapters to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's revisiting something he's already brought up. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that is purified, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise. Okay, what's he saying? In both of these texts, in chapter 4 and chapter 1, he alludes to the process of refinement. And this refinement he, he refers to as a fiery ordeal. A, we, he's, he's making an allusion or a metaphor here to a silversmith or a goldsmith that works with fine precious metals who places, who places these, these ore, this ore, this metal ore, into the furnace, into the furnace. Now, what happens in a furnace? How this refining fire, what the fire takes, what the fire removes, what it burns away is dross. That's impurities. What the fire takes is dross. Those are impurities. What the fire leaves is the precious metal, the gold or the silver. Or the or the uh, or the iron, whatever whatever ore it is that the, the, the silversmith or the uh, the metallurgist is working with. Now, what does that represent here? Each one of us, when we come to Christ, when I came to Christ in 1988, for you, when you came to Christ, when you came to Christ, whenever you began to follow Him, you came to Christ. I came to Christ in 1988 because I wanted forgiveness for my sins, and I entered into a relationship with Him. I I confessed my sins. I I received the Holy Spirit. I was born again. My relationship with him began. And my hope was in Christ. Sort of. You see, here's the thing. We never have completely 100% pure motives when we follow Jesus. We come to Christ and we want to enter into a relationship with him and he comes to us where we are at and he, he, he grants us grace and we receive that, that faith and we receive that free gift. But we don't simply want Jesus for Jesus' sake. We want Jesus for what Jesus can give us. We're hoping that he will give us the, uh, the perfect family, the perfect job. For me in 1988 when I was still wrestling, an NCAA title. You know, we want, we want Jesus to be our sugar daddy. We want Jesus to give us all the things that are going to make us happy. And we can't help it. And by the way, it's not wrong to ask your heavenly father for good gifts. We want to be healthy. We want to be successful. We want to have, a, we want to have good relationships. We want all those things. But do we want Christ for the sake of Christ? Well, that remains to be seen. Just wait until you're in the fire. Because sometimes when you're in the fire, it turns out that the reason you came to Jesus was so that you could get the girl or so that you could get the guy or so that you could get the NCAA title or so that you could get the job or that you could be healthy or that you could have your best life now. 
And then the hammer drops and you wonder why you decided to follow this God who's not giving you the life that you feel you deserve. And here's what's going on in the midst of that fire. What's going on in the midst of the fire is all of those temporal hopes that you thought were going to bring you joy, those are burning away. And the only thing that doesn't burn away is that which is absolutely eternal. And that's the person and work of Jesus Christ and your identity in him. Though he slay me, I will praise him, the psalmist says. And you can't come to that place in your faith until you are in the midst of the fire. It's not fun, but that's what training is, is it sanctifies us. It, it brings about that which is pure. It reveals to us that our faith was not as strong as we once thought it was. You, you see how this works? And this is universal. All of us experience this in degrees. And in seasons, in some of those seasons, the heat is intense. And sometimes it's just like an overly humid sauna, but it's uncomfortable nonetheless. But in either case, that heat is purifying and it's revealing. It's impossible, impossible to grow, impossible to grow without this. That's how refining works. That's how the fire works. So how do we respond? Three things in this text. First of all, verse 13, but rejoice, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a a murderer or a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler. So a couple things here. But first, let's start with verse 13. Verse 13, rejoice, rejoice. This is a theme which, which goes throughout the scriptures. If you're a note taker, you can write some of these things down. This is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. He says the same thing. Rejoice in these trials. James chapter 1, uh, verse 2. James says, consider it pure joy, Whenever you suffer trials of various kinds, Romans chapter five, verse two, I alluded to that earlier, uh, rejoice whenever you suffering for suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character and character hope. Colossians chapter 1, 24, Hebrews chapter 10, 34, on and on and on and on. The writers of the New Testament continually admonish us to rejoice when we suffer. Now, what does that word rejoice mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Be happy, be happy. No, no one is dancing and happy when they're in the flames. What he is saying here is in light of the fact that you understand what God is going to do in and through that pain that you are in right now and the eternal purpose for which that pain is going to produce your sanctification and your glorification and ultimately his glorification, you can thank him and be glad in the midst of it. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it hurts, but you know why you're going through it. 
Think about all the different times when I would be practicing under Dan Gable in the midst of, of, of these practices. And we used to have these things back in the day called red flag days. You could just imagine what a red flag day is. A, a red flag day is a special kind of torment. So there's regular practice, which were tormentous enough, but then there's red flag days, which amps everything up just a notch. And it pushes you physically and mentally to places you don't really think that you can go. And you don't enjoy it. Well, some of the guys I competed with did enjoy it, but they're masochists and they're just weird. But, <laughs> but you, you get the idea. You don't enjoy the pain for the sake of the pain, but you know why you're going through it. You know when you trust your coach, he's, he's putting you through hell so that you can become tested and your metal becomes stronger so that in the end, there's glory. Now, that's just in the context of sport, but you, you get the metaphor. It's, it's the same thing, only the pain's worse. The pain is worse. What you experience in life is far more painful than what you go through in a, an incredibly tough workout even under Gable. But your coach is infinitely wise. He knows what he's doing. And that's why you can rejoice. It doesn't mean be happy for the suffering. It means rejoice in the midst of the suffering and know that God is going to bring about your good and his glory. Your good and his glory. Uh, One quick reference here. It's important to look at verse 15. The caveat, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer as a meddler. Let's just be honest. Sometimes we suffer pain because we're idiots. And God uses that too. But sometimes our pain is a direct consequence of our sin. Peter's saying, don't go there. Don't go there. Just as an aside. But even then... God can use uh, the suffering that is brought about by our own sin to bring us into a relationship with him, a place of repentance. And even then too, God uses all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his glory. Romans chapter one, verses 28 and 29. So even then, but don't do it on purpose. Next. Glorify God. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The second thing is glorify God. First of all, rejoice. The next thing is to glorify God. How do you glorify God in the midst of your suffering? How do you do that? I mean, that sounds Christian-y, but what does that even mean? Rewind the tape, 1 Peter chapter 3, Take a look at verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if it should be God's will, then for doing evil. Here's what Peter's saying. When you're in the midst of that pain, people are watching you. They're watching you. And here's what they expect. 
They expect you to become embittered in soul. They expect you to curse God. What did Job's wife say to him? Job, why don't you just curse God and die? That's what they expect is us to respond in distrust towards our heavenly father. But Job did not respond in distrust. He says, woman, you're speaking like one of the foolish women. Shall we not expect good from or evil from God as well as good? Now, the, the Hebrew word evil does not mean malicious intent. It means bad. It means difficult circumstances. Shall we not accept bad circumstances from God as well as good? It, he glorified God how he responded to God, how he responded to his suffering. So Peter's saying, be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. Here's what it looks like. Though he slay me, I will still praise him. I will give glory to God because I know, even if I don't understand how, I know that as I am on the anvil and the hammer is dropped, and then I am taken off the anvil and plunged into the refining fire and back onto the anvil and back into the fire. I know that that process is going to bring about my good and his glory, even if I can't see it. And I will praise him. In the midst of my pain, I will praise him. And I know that some of you are hurting so badly right now that you find that almost offensive. Your Savior walked that path long before you did. And the heat was far more intense. Let him glorify God. And lastly, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. I just need to stop right here and open up a can of worms. Is your suffering God's will? Is what you're going through right now, and it, that, that intense pain, is it his will? No? No, it's from Satan. It's from Satan. This, this evil comes from Satan. So... Satan is somehow above God and he's operating outside of the sovereign will of God? Here's not, I'm not saying, is your suffering, I'm not saying this, I'm not asking this, is your suffering, is God the first and primary cause of that? That's not what I'm asking. I'm not saying, did God cause your cancer? I'm not saying, did God cause the, the, the person who abused you sexually when you were a child? Did God cause that? No, 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 no. No, that's offensive. You cannot and will not attribute sin and evil to God. The question is, is it his will for you? Is he, did he allow this? Did the enemy, if the enemy's involved, did the enemy have to get his permission? The answer is yes. And you say, you say I don't like that. If that's not true, then God is not in control of the universe. And there's no guarantee that your suffering will end in his glory and your good. But those who suffer according to God's will, all of your suffering is, is under the sovereignty of God. I'm not saying that he's caused it, but he's allowed it. And it is a fire and it is a refining fire and a test that God plans to use for your good. 
Does that make sense? It's important to get that straight because if you walk around with the idea that some kinds of suffering are not God's will in that he did not allow it, but it happened anyway, your God is weak, your God is not in control, and your God may or may not be able to deliver you in the end. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust. The word entrust, it can be translated commit. So if I entrust something to you or you entrust something to me, you come to me and you say, Brooks, I entrust this to you. Keep this safe. So when we entrust our souls to a faithful creator, we come to him and we say, Lord, I don't understand what I'm going through right now. And I, I don't have to. I just know that I hurt a lot. And I'm afraid. And I don't know what to do. But I'm going to entrust my soul to you. And I'm going to trust that you know the beginning from the end. You see, how do you do that? You look to your Savior who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. The joy that was set before him when he endured the cross was your and my redemption. And when he hung on the cross, he prayed the words of David from Psalm chapter 31. When he said, Father, into your hands I commit or entrust my spirit. It's the same word. That's where Peter got that, is that his Savior was in the fire and entrusted himself to his Father. As he endured the sin of the world and the Father's wrath against that sin, he entrusted himself faithfully to his Father. Coming back full circle to that moment where I was surprised by suffering And we didn't know. We didn't know what the outcome was going to be. I calmed myself down and I realized the games that I was playing intellectually in my head, that I was charging God with evil and that I I somehow had managed to believe or think that I was owed a life without suffering. And and I I recognize that intellectually I know better than that. But nonetheless, this isn't an intellectual exercise. It's, It's real pain. It's real hurt. It's a father looking at the possibility of losing his son. I came back to the hospital room and calmed myself down. And my wife and I entrusted ourselves and entrusted our son to the Lord. And the doctor said, we're going to perform a biopsy to see the extent of the damage of the kidneys and then we'll begin massive doses of steroids. And so I remember Stacy and I kneeling by his bed before they took him in for the biopsy. And we entrusted him and ourselves to the Lord. I don't remember exactly what I prayed, but I remember it had something to do with Abraham and Isaac. And Stacy and I, we prayed. We said, Father, we know that you love him more than, than, than we do. And you have given us this child and we entrust him to you. 
And we ask that you would heal him. But if you don't, we will praise you nonetheless. And he healed him. And then Stacy got sick and she suffered chronically for 20 years. And some of you have had kids who have become, become sick or, or people that have become sick and you prayed and you entrusted them and they were healed. And it doesn't always have a, a happy ending on this side of eternity. eternity. So I don't want to tell you my story with Ryan and think that that's how it always ends because it doesn't. But the entrusting is still the same. Though you slay me, I will trust you.